today um, we're going to do a little bit of a review. I, in your bulletins, I said it's a brief review. I lied. <laughs> it's not brief. Uh, I didn't realize just how much um, some of these points were uh, when we first went over them. So um, anyway, so today we're going to go from Genesis 1 to Genesis 11, and we're going to hit some of the major themes. Now, just as a cautionary note, that does not mean that we're going to talk about, um, let's say, how old the earth is. We're not going to talk about the giants in Genesis 6. If you have questions about that, that's next week. And I will be happy to let Mike answer those. And Mike is going to answer those questions about all those things. Um, instead, what I wanted to hit on are the things that are the underlying themes. The things that, um, let's say, an old earth creationist and a young earth creationist can agree upon. Um, the things that when we look at, uh, let's say, modern science, that modern science actually says is true, that the scriptures have said for the whole time. Um, most people think that modern science, let's say, uh, goes against all these things, but I don't necessarily think it does when we look at it from the right perspective, which is the perspective from a God perspective. Um, now, it doesn't mean that I agree with modern science. <laughs> it just means that, let's say you're having a conversation. How many of you had conversations with atheists recently or in the past few years? I do at work all the time. And they always ask the same questions. How do you know God exists? What evidence can you give? Genesis 1 through 11 actually provides a few of those. Um, and it's important for us to get these because in our society, we're fighting a different battle than Paul was. Um, Paul, he was fighting uh, polytheism, which means that they believed in gods, but they didn't understand what one god meant. And how he was the one, the ruler of all. In our society, we're fighting a different battle, which is atheism. That no God exists at all. Complete and total naturalism, where only nature exists, nothing supernatural at all. Well, Genesis, obviously, is teaching us two things. First, that God exists. And second, that he is one. He is above all. Um... And so those are the points I want to hit on that I think are the main points that we need to address. And if you can get even one of these arguments, you'll be that much more able to encounter these atheist conversations that we continue to have in our society. You'll be able to be better equipped, um, not in order to, let's say, save you, because only faith saves you, not this knowledge. But this does strengthen your faith. It does. That's why God wants us to learn about these things. So... Um, that's what I'm going to say about all this. When we get into that, you know, don't throw anything at me. Again, these are some of these you've probably, those who have been here for the whole of Genesis 1 through 11, you know some of these already. You know all these already. Those who have missed a few are going to hear them for the first time today. There's a lot to go over. I would recommend if you've got a pencil, paper, start taking notes if you want to. If not, um, I can send this stuff to you. That's fine. So let's begin. So the beginning starts with Genesis 1, 1, and 2, but it can also be tied in the Genesis 8 through 9. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So from the beginning of Genesis, we encounter two very different things in a way. The first is God, and the second is the created order. As we see in this text that we just read, God is far above the created order. In fact, without God, there would be no created order at all. So it is, we find something interesting, and that is how great our God is to bring all the universe into existence. Now, before we go too far, 
One also wants to consider just how wonderful the Genesis origin story is in comparison to other origin stories of the same time frame. Um, And we looked at them when we went over them, but uh, the Babylonian understanding and how the god Marduk, the way that they created the world in Babylon, was that the god Marduk killed the goddess Tiamat to create the world. Obviously very different than what we read in Genesis. Um, And the truth is we find many other creation accounts in the ancient world. And in some ways these are similarities between Genesis account and the pagan accounts. But the truth is, while having similarities, it's the differences that are the key. For example, when it comes to the Egyptian mythology, the gods do not come before pre-existent matter. Instead, they are brought about by the matter itself. One Egyptian myth actually has the first god, let's say, coming up out of the mountain, and that's how the god came to be. In this sense, we see the difference between what we read in Genesis and what we find with the Egyptians back then. In Genesis, God does not come out of anything. Instead, everything else comes from God and his word. Likewise, there's a difference, too, in the general polytheism, which was around during the same time period. Uh, For one, the polytheistic, that means the many gods religions, such as those in Egypt and Babylon and Persia, Acadia, Sumeria, Greece, and Rome, they all had the belief that the gods were connected in some way to nature. Thus, the Egyptian god Ra, he was associated with the sun. He was the sun god. Um, In Sumer, the god An was associated with the heavens, and his consort, Ki, was associated with the earth. We remember Aphrodite, in Greek culture, for love and especially fertility, and the same for Venus and Rome. Thus, for these pagan beliefs, the gods were associated with nature. They were bound to nature. One worshipped the god then in various ways, which would result in blessings, and they worshipped them through their god's means. Thus, if you wanted children in ancient Greece, one would worship Aphrodite's. And how would you worship a goddess of fertility? By going to the temple and fertilizing, um, having intercourse. That was the way that they pleased and honored her. And if one pleased and honored her, then they would look favorably upon you. And whether it was human fertility or good crops or even safe travel. In this way, not only could one receive a blessing, but one also gave the God nourishment. It was a way to appease the gods and to help the gods remain nourished as they took the essence of the offerings and devoured it. Now, in Genesis, though, we see a stark contrast between the god of the first two verses of the scriptures and the pagan deities found throughout the world at the time. Genesis does not count a multiplicity of gods. Nor does Genesis describe a god in battle with other gods, nor is is the god of Genesis a god who is reliant upon anything or anyone. Instead, God is the god of all, the creator of all, the self-sustaining and far above creator of creation. We find a god who is sovereign over all matter. He is sovereign over the whole world. Not only is he sovereign over this world, but all worlds, all the cosmos, is under his sovereignty. If we take the next logical step that the scriptures teach as well, then we come to find another fascinating conclusion, which is just how powerful God is by creating all of this ex nihilo, out of nothing. Now, we also find something interesting in the text, and that is that the universe has a beginning. While all other religions at the time assumed matter was eternal, Genesis 
argues differently. Do you know what agrees with this? Ironically, a source some would not expect, and that is modern science. Consider this. Long before the time of modern science, only Genesis understood uh, um, the understanding of Genesis of the origin of the universe acknowledged that the universe had a beginning and was not eternal in and of itself. Only Genesis. Out of all the other views, only Genesis. So consider the following logic. Everything that begins to exist obviously has a cause. If the universe began to exist, then the universe has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore it has a cause. The most logical explanation for that cause is God. For there can be only two things which would cause the universe to begin to exist. The first is something abstract, like numbers or shapes, and the other is a mind or a being. Now we know that abstract objects do not cause anything to exist. So it can't be that. Uh, the most logical conclusion, then, is that the universe began to exist by God. Now some might say, why can't the universe simply exist? Well, we know that things that exist do so either out of necessity of its nature or because of an external cause, contingently, so to speak. So what is something that exists out of necessity? Well, God, an abstract idea such as numbers or sets of numbers, even shapes. They just simply exist. One plus one equals two. It's, it's just the way it is. What are things which exist because of an external cause or contingently on something else? Well, you, me, houses, books, phones, things that exist from an external cause which would not exist apart from a cause. The question then is, does the universe exist necessarily or contingently? The answer is, it does not exist necessarily. Simply put, there is no reason to assume that the universe should exist um, the way it does. Should it have formed differently, then nothing within the universe would exist. If gravity, for example, were slightly higher or lower, if there was more or less carbon, if the energy was slightly higher or slightly lower, none of these necessary components of the known universe would happen because they need to happen. Thus, the universe does not exist necessarily as we see it. So what does that mean? It means that the universe exists contingently. It exists because something else caused it to exist. What could possibly cause it to exist? The answer is something which is timeless, something necessary, something that is not material, something powerful, and something not contingent on something else. The only possibility is God. Now, logic teaches us something more, and that is that whatever caused the universe to begin existing must be the first cause. And especially the first two verses of Genesis, we find this to be the case. For the first cause is God himself. He alone can cause the universe to exist because he is causeless. Nothing calls God to exist. He exists necessarily. And this is actually a question I got from one of the kids a few years ago at VBS. Where did God come from? He is the first cause. And he did nothing cause God to exist. That's what you have to teach him. <laughs> Um, it was a very interesting conversation <laughs> with VBS kids. Um, all right, so now logic teaches us something more, 
and that is whatever calls the universe to begin existing. Oh no, we talked about that. What the modern? What now? Here's the question I want to ask all of you: What is modern science found? Well, like it or not, modern science has found the same exact thing that we just said. With Big Bang cosmology, modern science has argued that the universe does, in fact, have a beginning. That's the main tenet of the Big Bang hypothesis, is that it all started with the Big Bang. Prior to the Big Bang, there was nothing. Now, where modern science gets it wrong is assuming that the Big Bang can simply occur on its own. For as we know from science, nothing can cause itself. And as we just saw, the universe cannot exist necessarily, but it must be caused by something else. But let's also consider some other facts. According to the second law of thermodynamics, it states that entropy occurs over time. Uh, we see this in our own bodies and the world around us. As time progresses, we start to get older. We feel the effects of entropy. But you know what else does? The universe. Scientists have recognized that the universe will eventually run out of usable energy. Why? Because once energy is used up, it ceases to be. You can't get it back. If the universe had existed for an infinite time in the past, let's say, then all the energy in the universe would have been used up by now. As it is, we find that this is not the case. We have energy, but the sun shines. Thus, the universe must have had a beginning. It can't exist eternally in the past. When we take into account how physicists predicted the expanding of the universe, it further shows that the universe had a beginning. If the universe is not expanding outward, then it must be expanding from somewhere, or is expanding outward, it must be expanding from somewhere. As it is, this theory has been confirmed by many scientists. So again, the universe must have a beginning. Do you know who isn't surprised to find all these things to make sense in the world around us? The Bible. All of this stems from the very first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Again, no other ancient text comes close to what we find in Genesis. Likewise, no other view, past or present, offers a better explanation for the universe than what we see here. Thus, when there are those who argue for some other reason for the origins of the universe, consider these thoughts. When others say, well, what makes the Bible different? Well, politely inform them that it speaks of God as a creator, not as created, unlike the gods or the pagans of religion, of other religions. It speaks of the cosmos having a beginning, which is something even modern science has agreed with. And it places God above the created order as the first cause. The first verse of the scriptures speak to us in this regard. It beckons us to think about the universe in this way, to reflect on what it exactly means for this God to have created the cosmos. It should cause us to be filled with great wonder, a great sense of awe over this God who is the creator, who is far above everything else. When we think about how large the universe is and how it is created by this magnificent creator, all that we should do is fall on our knees and worship over what he has accomplished. The end result for all of this should be nothing more than adoration, praise, and complete willingness to follow after our God. For the whole universe has been beckoned into existence and it follows his decrees. 
so it should cause us to do the same. We have been beckoned, and we too should seek to follow his decrees, follow him wherever he has called us to be, and in whatever manner is most pleasing and glorifying to him. While we certainly do not want to say that the biblical authors um, had all these thoughts in their minds when they thought about this, the truth is the very first verse of the Bible argues something remarkable, truly different than what we receive from any other source. And it gives us the foundation for the universe itself, and therefore it gives us the foundation for all of reality, and that is God. In this, we see the sovereignty of God on display And his sovereignty should cause all of us to rejoice in knowing that he is our God. He who has caused and created all things has sought you. And he bought you. And he loves you through his son Jesus Christ. The same Jesus who was before all else. So praise his name. For the Lord has brought forth this cosmos in all of its wonder for his great glory. I know I missed something on there, didn't I? I missed a picture, didn't I? It's okay. We'll keep going. All right. So that's the first one we want to talk about is how God is the first cause and how Genesis actually argues this um, very easily. Now, the second thing we want to talk about, Genesis 1 through 3, as well as Genesis 8, um, but we'll only read one verse or two, three. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the day, light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And then we go on through each day of the week. Um, all right. So right after Genesis 1, 1 and 2, comes Genesis 1 through 3. Uh, and with this comes a great deal of information about the created order. Oftentimes we focus so much on the creation, though, we forget the vast riches we find when it comes to learning about who God is. For example, what we find is a God who distinguishes. We see this when the first three days of the week, the first day God creates light and distinguishes the light from the darkness. The second day he distinguishes the waters above from the waters below. The third day he goes on to distinguish between the water and the land and further vegetation from vegetation. What does this tell us about our God? Personally, I think it reminds us that our God is wise. Oftentimes we talk about wisdom, but what exactly does wisdom mean? What is wisdom? A lot of times we'll say it's coupled with knowledge, which is in some way true. But it's not knowledge either, is it? It's something different than knowledge. One can know things without being wise. You can ask Carissa this about me. She says it all the time. Stop saying it. Um, No, I kid. Still, others will say that wisdom is what you do with your knowledge. Now we're getting closer, and that is part of it. In fact, that leads to the medium between the two, and that is while knowledge is gaining an understanding, wisdom is the ability to make judgments, to discern. Thus, we see in the text of Genesis 1-3 through especially that our God is one who discerns. He discerns between the light and the darkness, uh, between the heavens and the earth, the waters and the earth. But we also notice another aspect of his discernment, and that is when he calls elements of the creation good. By calling them good, it reminds us that our God is good, and it is from him that all good things come. 
He is the one who defines what good is and therefore what bad is. He discerns between them. Thus, what we find from the beginning of creation is wisdom. Now, this should not surprise us, should it? Consider what we find in the book of Proverbs chapter 8 when wisdom says this, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up, at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the foundations of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing him before him always." Rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Wisdom. Wisdom. Thus we see wisdom is from the beginning. It is with wisdom that God created the heavens and the earth. It is the wisdom of God which brings all of the creation from chaos into order. From the formlessness into form. From darkness even into light. Our wise God created this entire cosmos with the purpose of wisdom behind it. He discerned what the universe needed to be for his utmost glory. And from this comes what we perceive and experience around us. Interestingly enough, science actually argues this very point. The fine-tuning of the cosmos is evidence in what we are able to perceive. Many do not know that scientists have found that there are certain constants within our universe that, if altered, would not allow life to exist. In fact, each one has been so precise, it has to be, that to be changed even minutely would mean the universe would not be able to be a good habitat or even habitat any life. Don't believe me? Consider what we mentioned in the last point, gravity. If the constant for gravity in the universe had been even slightly altered, then the universe would not be able to permit life. Uh, The best way to describe this is to imagine a dial divided up in 1 in 10 to the 60th parts. And some of you might remember this part now. Um, If the dial is set at any other one of those points, other than where it is set, then the universe would not have been able to exist. Either it would have been too heavy and collapsed in on itself, it would have been too light, and then it would have just simply collapsed back in on itself after it went away for a second. Um, It would have expanded too quickly, essentially, for stars to form. The best way to describe just how momentous this number is, imagine all the cells in your body. That is one in 10 to the 14th parts. Or all the seconds since the beginning of the universe, assuming assuming a long older universe, I don't necessarily agree with that, but let's assume that they're right. An older universe is in view. One in 10 to the 20th. Said another way, let's imagine that you have a radio 
where you can change the dial of the radio and receive different stations. You know, like, uh, what's a station everyone listens to? Just shout out a, a station. One, F, what is that station number? Uh, where do you want to be here? Yeah. 100.7. 100.7. That's an example of a radio station, right? 100.7. What if you want to 100.8? Be either static or something else. 100.9. Static or something else. Eventually, you'd get to KC 101. Eventually, maybe. Which would be 101.3, I think. 101.5. Five. Well, 101.3 would be different than KC 101.5. <laughs> you see how your radio is different. Every station has a different thing that plays through. Um, so now let's imagine, though, that the radio had each one of these, 10 and 60th, and each part was a different station. The number of stations would look like this. Go ahead, Butts. That's how many numbers? 100, what is that? 100 thousands, millions, billions, trillions. 100 trillion stations. Could you imagine a radio that had 100 trillion stations? I don't want a radio like that. Or let's consider the next one. 1 in 10 and 20th. So that's even a number we don't even have a number for. One more. See that last number? 10 and 60th? That's the gravity that we need. It needs to be that precise. All right. Now let's imagine that there was only one station that was playing the songs you wanted to play out of that huge number. One station. Or, better said, let's imagine that every other station played static except for one of that. That would be really hard to find that station, wouldn't it? But that's what it's like with gravity. You see, the way that gravity works, that if you had it any other way, you wouldn't have what we have here. How precise, how what we would say designed for it to be playing exactly what it needs to be playing, so to speak. Um... So the difference isn't songs on the radio. It's how much gravity again, or how little gravity there is. If the dial is set just one of those numbers off, life wouldn't exist. So lots of numbers. But scientists and philosophers also notice that it is not just gravity, <laughs> but also the expansion rate of the universe, which is driven by the cosmological constant that they call. Now if this had a dial... And it was changed in one part in 10 to the 120th. Then again, life would not be able to exist. So not only do you need gravity to be perfect, you need that to be perfect. One station out of all those. We're not done yet. <laughs> so those are two specific examples. Are there any more? Yes, and this one's the massive one. Now, thanks to mathematician Roger Penrose, we can have one other one. Consider that if the mass and energy of the universe, specifically what he relates to neutrinos, photons, atoms, and dark matter, things I have no idea about, well, were they not evenly distributed as they were, there would be no life. None. Dr. Penrose has postulated that they must be set exactly right from this is a crazy number. One part in 10 to the 10 
to the 123rd. This number is ridiculous. Consider what we said earlier. It was simply the number with that many zeros behind it. So like 10 and 60 was 1, 0, 60 times. Every time I tried to do this number, though, on a calculator, it erred because there's not enough space on a calculator to even do this. No modern computer can computate that. Not even close. It's too massive of a number. Every time I tried to use a calculator again, it erred. Still, if any of them had been changed, if this had been changed, even that small amount, no life. You wouldn't exist. I wouldn't exist. No biology. No deer. No ticks. Mike likes to use ticks. Um, fascinatingly enough, though, even though Dr. Penrose had made this calculation, and many seem to accept it as valid, he is still an atheist. <laughs> Luckily, we have many philosophers, such as Dr. William Lane Craig, uh, Alvin Plantinga, who say, wait a minute, we need to talk about something. We need to ask something about this. What could possibly cause all these numbers to be dialed in so precisely? to allow for life to exist. How is it all so finely tuned? Well, there are only th there are three that scientists and philosophers come to. The first is necessity, and we talked about this previously. It is necessary for the universe to have these numbers dialed in as such, as in the universe could not exist at all unless it were the case. Unfortunately, there's no evidence that it is necessary for the universe to have all these numbers dialed perfectly in. There is nothing in nature which would suggest that the universe must be life-permitting. And most agree that it is actually incredibly more likely that our universe would be life-forbidding than life-permitting. Why? Because all of those have to be perfectly in line. The second possibility is mere chance. And this is one that we know scientists love to go to. Is it possible that we just got lucky with the universe? The answer is not likely. Scientists will tell us that it is chance, but in order to claim that this is the case, they have gone beyond the realm of science into the realm of philosophy. They do this by proposing the multiverse theory. The multiverse theory holds that there is some machine which creates universes, and ours just happens to be the one that permits life. What's the problem with this? Well, first, there's no verifiable evidence that the multiverse exists. They cannot prove it by any scientific standard. Likewise, it doesn't explain the reality that the machine that makes universes would have to be fine-tuned itself in order to create universes to allow life to exist at all or to create things that don't exist. In other words, someone or something, so set the boundaries of the universe to allow life to exist. Um, so ultimately, again, there is no evidence to suggest that such a machine must exist. Thus, they would have to go to chance forever. Basically, oh, well, then a machine made the machine, made the machine, made the machine all the way back forever. Doesn't make sense. So what is the final explanation for the fine-tuning of the universe? Design. Design. Scientists reflect on the fact that the universe is so ordered as to permit life that they even recognize design as an impression on the universe. Some atheist scientists say this, that design is impressed on the universe. 
In other words, someone or something so set the boundaries of the universe to allow life to exist, and scientists see it all the time. This is the most plausible explanation as to why the universe exists as it does, and how there is life, any form of life, in our universe at all. Now, personally, I find that this is the case. This is what we find in Genesis 1 through 3, and again and later on in Genesis 8 through 9. We find in the first six days of creation a fine-tuning of the universe. It may not be described as fine-tuning with modern science has discovered, but it does describe God creating the universe with a design plan. We see this as each day God brings forth elements from light, the separations of the heaven and the earth, the earth from the waters. And this brings us back to the first point of all of this. How wise is our God to create a universe such as the one which we inhabit? Our God's knowledge is vast and complete. But the fact that he knows exactly how much of each element in to add in order to bring about his creation is a witness to his wisdom. He purposefully created the entire cosmos for the particular purpose of his glory. He brought about the creation of the universe and then ordered it so that it would fill his own grand design plan to allow life, to allow you to exist. If one were to study the history of science in Europe, and one were to consider all the great scientists who came out of so many uh, revolutionary ideas, you would find all of the early scientists were theists. Many of them were Christians. You would find them praising God in their studies because they recognize the great design which the universe gives testimony to, just as the scriptures say. They very clearly saw the design, the telos, the ultimate purpose of each thing within creation, and they said, wow, our God is great. We see it ourselves when we plant and harvest. Consider it, when you plant corn, Are you expecting to get barley in return? Or if you were to have an apple orchard and you planted apple seeds, would you expect blueberries? No, because the telos of the seed, the objective is to grow into an apple tree because it is an apple seed. The same is true with animals, with let's say fish. You won't have a hammerhead shark mate with a hammerhead shark and get a dolphin. That would be weird. We would think that's crazy. Why? Because the telos, the objective, the end result will be something which is deeply buried within DNA itself. And the DNA, the source code, is designed to bring forth a baby hammerhead shark. We see all of this not only in the extremes of the universe, but in the everyday agriculture, everyday scientific, everyday nature that we experience, which is why so many early scientists, again, they would be observing these things, the spiders, they would be observing genetics. And then suddenly, in the midst of all their writing down the notes and looking down at the math and all this, they would stop and just say, God is, should be glorified for this. Praise God for creating the universe in this way. God is spectacular. Right in the midst of their notes. Like mid-paragraph, stop, praise God. Now the question we want to ask is, have any of us praised God for his great wisdom in creating the known universe that we see? Have we ever stopped to consider the magnitude of this creation and stopped in awe, not of the creation, but of the one who created it? Have we thanked God 
for the marvelous world which he created. How the world was made to bear fruit of its own kind. Have we thanked God for the marvelous nature which exists, which truly echoes to us the glories of our God on high? The point we find about God in these early passages of Genesis is that he purposefully designed the universe. We find a God who is far greater than the universe itself even. When he speaks, guess what? It listens. When his creative word is uttered, the universe responds. Thus we find a God who is vastly superior to all other gods known to man. We find a God who is not controlled by nature, but who controls it. We find a God who is exactly as we would expect as we reason with the universe which we see. Again, how great and mighty is our God. How wonderful are his ways. If the first chapter of Genesis and further is teaching us anything, it's to remind us that our God could easily have chosen to make himself beyond our comprehension. Yet he reaches down and he saves us. He redeems us and teaches us about who he is in his personhood, in his might, and in his glory. What else can we say of what we've learned from Genesis already? For all that is left for us to do is join the heavens as they declare the glory of God. But we got one more point, everyone. Sorry, I know it's going long, but you are awesome. All right. (laughs) This one comes from Genesis 3, 4, 6 through 9, and 11. (laughs) But we're only going to read a little bit of that. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot man out, whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Some of you might remember this argument. Um, This is actually called the moral argument. None of you knew that I was actually teaching you philosophy during all this time, did you? (laughs) Fun, isn't it? All right. So now something else that we have seen in Genesis is the ramifications of the fall in full effect. The human race as a whole has, throughout the first 11 chapters of Genesis, fallen far from where God has first made us. Um, Being made in his image to enjoy him in obedience to him forever, to the moment before the flood, for example, where God has pain in his heart for creating humanity. As it is, What we find in these chapters after the fall are a reflection of what we find in ourselves apart from God. For it is here in the midst of the sorrow and sins of these generations that we've looked over that we find humanity at its worst in all of its broken relationships. First in the broken relationship with God in living in disobedience to him. Second, in broken relationship to one another and the domination of others that we see repeatedly happening, Cain and Abel, and with those in Genesis 6. Third, in the broken relationships with the world in which the very clear boundaries set by God at creation, his design, is being tested and broken in Genesis chapter 6. Yet all of these broken things stem from a society, a people, who have no interest in God. The pre-flood generations are individuals who did not desire to know God or love God. In fact, you see that after the flood too, eventually. They did not care for God, for his glory, for him at all. Instead, they were a generation, and they were generations, who lived for self, growing in power and growing in their sins day after day. Not shockingly, we find this of the generations after the flood as well, as I said. 
It is, so, is it so surprising that the end result of such a people was sin? I think not. For when a person desires to live as though God does not exist, and when that person becomes a group of people, and a culture, and a civilization, then all that will remain is darkness. Thus the way the text describes these individuals is poignant. They were people who only did evil, and only ever thought evil in their hearts all the time, and a people so proud as to trust in themselves rather than God. Now the question we want to ask is, how is this relevant to us? Well, I think it is very relevant as we consider our own world and our own time and our own culture and our own country. For as we see, there are many who would seek to push God away from the table, so to speak. Within our culture and many cultures, to bring God to the table of discussion is to be ridiculed, is to be ignored, is to be called all sorts of interesting names, which I have been called personally. Yet where does such a culture lead? Where does such a world end up? Now, some of you might remember this story, but I want to re-say it again. All of this makes me think of Nietzsche, of all people, and his parable of a madman. And I'm always fascinated by this. Um, Consider what he says, the madman. Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace, and cried incessantly, I seek God! I seek God! As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost? asked one. Did he lose his way like a child? asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage? Immigrated? Thus they yelled and laughed. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God? he cried. I will tell you, we have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained the earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually? Backward, sideways, forward in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as to an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? God's too decompose. God is dead. God remains dead and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood from us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become God simply to appear worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed, and whoever is born after us for the sake of this deed, he will belong to a higher history than all history hitherto. Here, the madman fell silent and looked again at his listeners, and they too were silent and stared at him in astonishment. At last, he threw his lantern on the ground, and it broke into pieces and went out. I have come too early, he said then. 
My time is not yet. This tremendous event is still on its way, is still wandering. It has not yet reached the ears of men. Lightning require, and thunder require time. The light of the stars requires time. Deeds, though done, still requires time to be seen and heard. This deed is still more distant from them than the most distant stars, and yet they have done it themselves. It has been related further that on the same day the madman forced his way into several churches and there struck up his requiem acternum deo, let out and called into account. He said always to have replied nothing but, What after all are these churches now if they are not the tombs and the sepulchres of God? I personally always found this writing to be interesting. Nietzsche And it recognizes the repercussions of what it means for a world to exist without God. During his time, and even in his own work, many philosophers were trying to picture or imagine a world, even bringing about a world, a world in which God did not exist, and what that would mean for humanity. In this work, he recognizes that it would lead to a detachment with virtually everything in society, hence his symbolism of drinking up the sea, or of wiping away the horizon, Some believe it is this thought which made him believe that the century after his would be the bloodiest century of all time. Well, he was right. The 20th century was just that, a world in which more individuals died through warfare and genocide than all the other in the history of humanity combined. But despite foreseeing this reality, Nietzsche, he held out hope. One of his famous ideas... Out of chaos comes order. He believed that once we stripped away all these beliefs in God, and once we had this time of transformation and destruction, then in the end it would lead to a better world. The question we all need to ask is, has it led to a better world? Do you feel like it's a better world today than it was 150 years ago? I think we can argue no. You see, these philosophers believe that the departure of God, the cutting off of God, would lead to a better world. But the truth is, it hasn't. The reason why is that once you cut off God from the world, then it naturally leads to everything Nietzsche predicted, a world unhinged. We see this in our own world today when it comes to morality. Consider the question, is it possible for people to be good without believing in God? I would say technically yes. It is possible for people to be good without God. In fact, we see people who do not believe in God doing good things all the time. And even Jesus recognized the pagans knew good things even without having God. But that isn't the real question, though. The real question is not, can you do good without believing God? But the question is, can you be good without God? Or does good exist without God? If there is no God then there is no foundation for objective moral values, for right and for wrong, for good and for bad. As it is, we know what is good, righteous, just, loving, gracious, merciful, kind, because these are part of God's own character. But what happens when God is taken out of the equation? Let's say there's no God. Well, then that leads to subjective moral values. Now, what does that mean? Well, when something is subjective, it means that it is based upon the subject's preferences. A good example I like to use is cereal. I enjoy Frosted Flakes. You might enjoy Wheaties or Cocoa Krispies. These things are subjective. You can like yours. I can like mine. We are the subject, and we have our particular preferences about our cereals. When morality is described as subjective, it means that we each have our own morality, 
our own way of defining what is good and bad and right and wrong. Now, this may sound nice at first, but think about where that would lead. If everyone has their own objective moral values of right and wrong, then that means that there is no absolute standard for right and wrong. If there is no absolute standard, then there is no right and wrong. It means that your preferences is just as valid as my preferences. But if that is the case, then none of us can say anything is truly evil. So, for example, if morality is subjective, we cannot say that the Nazi regime was wrong and that the Holocaust was immoral. Nor can we say that the shootings in the U.S. these past few years were wrong or evil. Nor can we say that the sex slave trade that is current in America is wrong and evil. Why? Because if morality is subjective, then those who commit such acts have their own morality, and we have no right to say that their acts or their morality is wrong. But as it is, we do not say that morality is subjective. Instead, we recognize that morality is objective. We recognize morality has an absolute standard apart from us, and that is found in God. It is through God's character we can know what is right and wrong, good and evil. Through his commands we learn what is morally good and right. For example, the command to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. These are moral commands that lead to moral duties, what we should do. Yet they all stem from the same place. God, he loves, therefore we should love. Likewise, this leads to us being able to condemn what is evil by that which does not reflect the command. So if we hate our neighbor, if we cheat them or rob them or speak ill of them, discriminate against them, then we know that such acts are evil because they do not reflect loving one's neighbor. If God, however, is taken out of the equation, then again, there is no moral duties and no moral standards. Does this fit with our experience? I would argue, no. Simply put, if we, um, if we see an event occur which is evil, we instinctually know it's evil. When we see injustice, we say, this is injustice. Let's say if someone came in here today and stole all of your wallets. Would you be upset about that? Would you say, that's not right? Yes, that's, you're naturally going to say, that's not right for this guy to steal all of our wallets. We make a bold declaration that there is objective moral values. So how does this relate to Genesis? Well, in Genesis, we learn that the people were in sin. They were wicked. This terminology defines morality. They were not living in a way which was moral. Instead, they were living in ways which were immoral because we know that what is immoral is that which is against what is moral. And we know morality because we know God and his commandments. In our own society, we deal with the same thing. In our own society, we deal with individuals who do not have God, do not want God, and live however they want um, and by their own standard. We who are of the faith cannot boast or look down upon them because in all truth, we were once part of them. We were once in the same sphere of influence which tells us that God does not exist. I can live however I want to. I can do whatever I want. But now... Now that we are in Christ, we know that we are like Noah. We have found favor in God's sight. We can live in a way which is in congruence with God's own moral character. We can love. We can be merciful, kind, gracious, and just. We can now, because we have been redeemed 
by Christ, because God has found favor with us despite our sin. I find it fascinating to consider Genesis thus far and how it keeps on arguing for the existence of God. Consider it. Genesis 1, we learned about the universe having a beginning. We remember the argument was, if the universe has a beginning, then the best explanation for that beginning is God. But we also learned how the universe is designed. And we see the design of the universe here and now, and how everything needed to be set perfectly in order for life to exist in our universe. Now we find another argument, another reason for the existence of God, and that is morality itself. For you see, the generation of Noah and the generations which followed after even, they are not so different from our own. In fact, it is no different from our own because in the end, the generations of Noah, that's how everyone's feeling right now, Noah and those after merely shows us the reality of a people without God. Thus, any people without God will reflect the generations of Noah. It will reflect the evil found there because even if there is good, they do not glorify God or praise the God who defines what good itself is. And instead, they take the glory which belongs to God for themselves, placing themselves above God, just as Adam and Eve have done in the garden. Ultimately, we are all sinners at heart, and each one of us needs a new heart that seeks to glorify God instead of self. So it is Adam and Eve... Cain and Abel, Seth, Noah, Ham, Japheth, Shem, the Babylites, and even Abram. They're not so far from us. For as it is now, we reflect on the sorrow of humanity from then until now, and how we are all who share in the guilt, in the darkness, which is humanity outside of Eden. Indeed, a humanity seeking to live in a world as though God did not exist. But as it is, God does exist. And so we have joy in knowing that all of the created cosmos has a foundation in our great God. Everybody take a deep breath. Gospel. Because you know what? Even with all these philosophical and theological points, the most important point that we see every week in Genesis is the gospel. Every week. When it comes to our origins, we talked about it today, how God created the universe and how we are created in the image of God. And we have such a high calling to be his ambassadors on earth and how we have this in us. We see the amazing God in our origin story. But we also see the fall. And that's something that we talked about a little bit today with morality and how those in Genesis before the flood, they represented that well. Adam and Eve taking from the fruit and ultimately, it's an example of the sorrow that we are in and how we too take the fruit and we walk out of Eden with that apple in our hand, assuming it's an apple. But what happens though? What happens throughout all Genesis? Have you noticed it? Always a promise of redemption. From the very beginning, God said, from your womb, the snake may bite his heel, but he will crush the snake's head. From Noah's generation, the whole, all of the people, their pain in my heart, I'm going to destroy them all. But Noah found favor in God's sight. And there was an ark, and humanity kept going. From Shem, blessed be the line of Shem. 
Even though the Babylite story happened and all the people were dispersed, guess what? We're coming down to Abram. Next time we talk in two weeks, very first thing we learn from Abram, the blessing. All the nations will be blessed through you. All those nations that got scattered. Redemption. Over and over and over again. And that's what we see in our own lives through Jesus Christ. It's just a prelude. Genesis 1-11. through It's a prelude of all the good that is coming through Jesus. And we get to experience it. We get to look back and say, I was once part of that generation. Not anymore. God has saved me. And where is it all leading? Glorification. Where does the end of Revelation end, by the way? Anyone know? Mike? Where? Yeah, but what happens in that chapter? Where do we end up? What's in the what's what's also in there in particular? Do you ever notice this? There's a tree in that in that chapter. Yeah, but there's a tree. There's a tree. <laughs> there's a tree. See what I'm saying? Genesis one through three. It begins with us exiting the garden in the tree. Revelation twenty two ends with us going back to it. We get there through Jesus by faith. And that's what the whole point of Genesis 1-11 through 11 is telling us too. Because guess, who remembers Enoch? He was no more, right? He whispers to us even today, have faith. That's all that required of me. <laughs> to be saved. Faith. God only requires faith of us. We can't do it on our own. That's what their generations remind us of. They tried to do everything on their own. And they always failed. But by faith, God saves Remember this. Genesis is teaching us a whole lot about God, about who we are. But it's also teaching us about who Jesus is. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for Genesis 1-11. through We thank you so much that you have created this whole universe in which we are able to reason. In which we are able to look at all the little things that we see and say how great our God is. And so, Lord, as we continue to contend with this culture, which would continue to contend against you, let us be ready. Let our minds be equipped, let our hearts be steadfast, and let us be ready to do battle against all the forces of darkness, whether they come in any form. Because, Lord, you have called us to these things. You have called us to know who you are and to see you in this beautiful world and to say, look how great our God is. Let nothing else be on our lips except for that, Lord. How great is our God. How faithful is he. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for this world. We thank you for our history. And we thank you for the redemption found in Christ and where it leads. All praise and honor belongs to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.